The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney, and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD and certification, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property law. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observation, and especially my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Again, because bankruptcy law intersects with just about every other area of the law. And I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, insurance, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say that as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people in communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I was born into a military family in a military hospital, while my dad was on deployment and grew up as a military brat, and I always will be one. And also I helped create another one with my former spouse who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizens, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I love to tell you that I was raised by a dad who gave back to this country big time via his service in the military. And he informed me that I too had a duty to give back to my community, to our society as a whole, and even to the universe through some form of service of my own choosing in exchange for the many, many wonderful gifts and innumerable blessings God has given me. But he also admonished me that under no circumstances should I become a soldier, sailor, air man, or woman, or Marines, although they weren't called air air women back in those days, or a Marine, because I was just too inquisitive. I asked way too many questions, and I was way too stubborn to let a matter go if I didn't get a satisfactory answer to my query. It didn't have to be what I thought the answer was, but at least it needed to be logical. Now, these are traits that my dad found charming, endearing, and quaint, (laughs) but he also believed that they would get me into deep you know what, <laughs> if I were in a uniform and acted out that way in front of my military superiors. So he instead suggested that I 
instead of joining the ROTC in high school, like so many of my classmates did, and so many of my contemporaries who you know, were born and raised or raised in small towns throughout America in the 1970s when I was in high school, he urged me instead to focus on my academics and upon graduation, if I still wanted to serve the military of this great country, I should apply for a job at the Department of Defense as a civilian, which I did. A piece of advice I will forever be grateful to my dad to this very day, because working for the United States Army as a civilian in my teens, late teens and early 20s, opened up many opportunities for me that I still reap the benefits of until this very day, including the fact that one of my subsequent employers, Pacific Bell, who recruited me from my civil service job, supervised and created a special Bell Labs-based training program for me, in addition to promoting me into a high-paying technical job where I was the first Black female to be able to design and help implement some of Pacific Bell's internal communication systems, which in turn led Pacific Bell to appoint me to work on communication systems for one of its key customers, the United States Navy, while Pacific Bell picked up 100% of the tab for my education as a manager and a computer systems data and telecommunications engineer. That job subsequently led me to being recruited by an entity of Motorola, Codex Corporation, where I helped design and sell very large data and telecommunication systems to telecommunications companies, including Pacific Bell and other Fortune 500 country companies, including the Pacific Stock Exchange and Boeing. And guess what? Today, I heard from one of my colleagues from my job at Codex who had helped me. He was an attorney. He helped me and Codex negotiate a contract with Pacific Bell. That is attorney John Blank. Hey, John, thanks so much for reaching out to me. I'll be in touch real soon. And on top of having a great father and meeting some great friends, <laughs> having a great father who was committed to help steer me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I had the great fortune to both know and spend a lot of time with and actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the 20th century. That is to say, the Great Depression, World War II, the, and unfortunately, the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through into today that I sometimes come into direct contact with. But as I tell you, the older I get, the more I like Taylor Swift and I just have learned to shake it off. And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and share with me the stories of their great grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, lessons that in Still, to me, the requirements of all Black women that we must have courage. And, you know, it is out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me in spirit, urging me on, along with my late dad, to do the right thing, that when the situation is right through my current chosen form of service, 
that is to say, practicing and also speaking and writing about the law, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our very greedy, somewhat turned society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more probably than not these days, although, you know, the economy is is turning around, we still lack sometimes a sufficient amount of funds to do what we need to do. We also, you know, key that into your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your small business's financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as we begin our your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you Seek out and find the qualified professional help that I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. So today we're going to continue our discussion about artificial intelligence, also known as AI, specifically on a offshoot of the second generation of AI known as generative AI or Gen AI. AI um, that we read about and hear about almost every day in the media. Again, I'm making these series of presentations because most, if not all of you out there in radio land and podcast land have heard of generative AI. Some of you admit that you're not quite sure what it is or how it works or how it will impact you or us personally in our daily lives. This is especially the case for many in our historically black and brown communities where there's little, if any, access to broadband internet by design, a key component needed to for the full and ubiquitous deployment of generative AI on the one hand, that we will need to have access to the tools that we can use to help educate our own children and our grandchildren if we live in communities with poor quality schools or help us keep on top of our STEM education, that is to say science, technology, engineering, and math, so we can stay prime for these wonderful jobs. And for professionals like me who learned during COVID-19, legal professionals like me, that we can still uh, provide access to our clients online for consultation and ongoing communication. And in fact, we can actually help them in court, even though we were on zoom.gov. And, you know, this resulted in many of our courts realizing the good that could come from remote court. And so we're going to continue to do that. Uh, you know, However, just as the Internet has opened up greater access to the courts and to our general population, it's also laying the foundation for the creation of new tools that can help judges and lawyers like me make more fact-based and timely decisions that are well-grounded in prudential legal logic and that is safe, 
secure. And those are things that are really in, important because humans have to be in charge of generative AI. So when we come back, we'll continue our deep dive into generative AI by lifting the hood so we can take a look at what the inner workings are underneath of generative AI. But first, we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on today's topic, a deeper dive into generative AI by lifting the hood so we can take a look at the inner workings of generative AI. You know, last week we took a high level overview of what generative AI is. We also looked at some historical context of generative AI that is to say, its place in the development of AI. And we identified when uh, some of AI, generative AI, first came into being, came on the scene, and that was in the mid-first decade of this current millennium. So this week, we're going to continue our deeper dive into generative AI by giving examples of how it's trained. And on upcoming shows, we're going to list some of its best uses, and we're also going to identify some major risks that it poses, and we're going to illustrate how those risks can be mitigated. And then ultimately, we're going to discuss how generative AI can assist members of our legal community, including judges and members of the bar like me, and legal educators in our joint responsibility to to ethically serve our society and our collective judicial system. But first, let's take a recap. You know, what is generative AI? Again, Gen AI refers to artificial intelligence systems that can generate new content after being trained on one or more data sets containing large arrays of discrete pieces of information. For example, say the content of the Library of Congress, which according to Wikipedia contains 173 million items as of 2020. So by using algorithms that are, say, computer programs to analyze the content and meaning, meaning and logical relationships of these discrete pieces of information, generative AI learns patterns, styles, and structures from the data they are trained on and then uses their ability to synthesize the generative AI's understanding of how to reconfigure that data from the prompts that its teachers and coaches who train these systems on how to interpret the requests from their human users to generate new, previously non-existing material by recombining these data using logic-based extensions and extrapolations from known data that these AI systems have already been fed. This produces previously non-existent material that could range from text, images, and music, also code and create synthetic media. So generative AI models, particularly those that use language in processing, are trained on large amounts of text so they can produce coherent, contextually relevant 
answers and content that mimic human-like understanding and writing capabilities. Used in a variety of applications, including creating literary content, generating realistic dialogues, assisting with coding, and much, much more. The technology behind generative AI, such as GPT, the GPT in chat GPT, and GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And just think about it. That's actually what it's doing. It's generating new content from pre-trained data, and it's transforming that data. So that's how I remember it. It has made significant strides in recent years, leading to more sophisticated and nuanced AI capabilities. So let's briefly describe how AI are trained. Now, AI systems are trained through a process that involves teaching the system to recognize patterns, make decisions, and predict outcomes within a specific context. These training processes can vary depending on the type of AI, but generally the following basic steps are involved. There's the data collection step, gathering a large, high-quality data set is the first step. High quality as opposed to trash. This data set should be representative of real world scenarios where AI will be applied. For example, in image recognition tasks, the data set will consist of many images. Then there's the next part that's data processing. The collection of data often needs to be cleaned and formatted properly. This involves normalizing the data, adding in missing values, segmenting the data, and tokenizing the context. The goal of that is to convert raw data into a format that the AI algorithm can work with effectively. Then you have to choose what kind of model that you want to use. For different tasks, you might have different types of models, such as neural networks. What we talked about last week was is the computerized um, re-envisioning, recreation of the way our brain functions with these neural connections. There could be de- uh, decision trees uh, and the like. Today, deep learning models, which are a subclass of neural networks, are the, um, among the most popular uh, models that are used to train AI. Then there's the training of the model. The chosen model is trained using a process data set. This includes feeding the data into the model and allowing it to address to its own internal parameters, like weight of the neural network. The model learns through a feedback loop, a feedback process where it makes predictions based on the input data and then adjusts it to the parameters to improve its accuracy in its prediction. It's supervised learning, the most common type, the supervised learning. It involves having a lot of humans involved in this process to help the um, AI correct its own mistakes. Or it could be unsupervised learning. The model just learns patterns and structures on its own and doesn't have any labels. And and then there's reinforced learning, where the model uh, learns to perform tasks through trial and error, getting feedback in the form of rewards and penalties, kind of the way we train our children, you know, to do things that we want them to do. 
Then there's something called back propagation and optimization. For many AI models, especially for these neural networks that mimic our brain, back propagation is a method through which it updates its internal responses and corrects for errors. So think about you know, the process does what it, what it's going to do. And then this back propagation goes in their algorithms that correct mistakes. And then, you know, it's, it's tuned uh, uh, to uh, do what it is that it wants to do. And there's a validation process. That is to say, as the models are being trained, they're also tested on a separate data set to validate the existing data set during this training process. And it helps gauge the model's performance and its capabilities. And then after that, it's tested and deployed. And, you know, this is an iterative process in this this training of the process. You know, it's trial and error. There's many rounds of training, validation, uh, testing, uh, adjustments are made. The architecture is is updated or changed and the parameters are updated and changed. And then the process is done over and over again until you get it right. So how do humans interface in this AI training process? Humans can and must play a critical role in AI training. At the various stages, ensuring that the system learns effectively and performs as intended. Uh, Here's how a human might uh, be involved in the process or would be involved in the process. The problem definition. Humans determine the scope and the object of what it is that the AI is going to do. The humans are in charge of collecting the data and preparing it for the feeding into the AI, the data set that are going to be used to train the model. It's also tagged with sometimes with the correct answers and incorrect answers. And as I discussed last time, sometimes there's two different neural networks set up and they battle against each other. I said lawyers last time, but maybe a better example would be gladiators. They just, you know, hopefully the one with the right answer will survive. Then humans are also involved in the model's design. And they must also be involved in overseeing the training, evaluating how the training is going. They have to be able to explain to humans and to the AI what is right or wrong with its decision making process. Humans play a key role in ethically training these AI models on fairness because so many of the engineers that create these things are white male Caucasians of a certain age. Sometimes these AIs bring on um, uh, unfair uh, beliefs about certain groups in our society. So humans really have to be involved to ensure that diversity of training and that the systems are created with as limited bias as possible. Then they're fine-tuned. Uh, uh, humans are involved in that and in maintaining the AI models once they're deployed. They're also involved in the user interface design. We are the human beings that are going to be using these things, so we need to make sure that they feel comfortable, in quotation marks, interfacing with us. And humans are also responsible for legality and compliance. 
um, you know, AIs um, sometimes involve um, uh, infringement on copyrights and the like. And we have to make sure that the data that's used that's personally identifiable is uh, massed in such a way that it doesn't invade or evade privacy laws. In essence, throughout the life of the AI cycle, the initial conception through the deployment and beyond, humans are intimately involved in guiding the AI, ensuring that they're developed responsibly, aiding in their performance for both users and for our society as a whole. So when we get together next time, we're going to continue this fascinating subject matter, including, you know, providing you with some of the risks associated with generative AI and how we can overcome the, those risks. But as always, in closing here on Selwyn's Law, we want to stay on the right side of the law, including having an open mind about using generative AI in the legal profession and others, so long as and only if the inputs and outputs from this generative AI are controlled by ethical and wise human beings. So till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. 